Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Ah, not a great cork sound on this. No, that, no, but it's okay. Uh, we're drinking Balcones today because we are talking Houston Texans. If you couldn't figure that out from the hoodie that I'm wearing, uh, it's a momentous day for me, EJ, because for the first time in a long time, I have true hope. You know, it was it was a rough few years there uh, where I actively did not want to have any emotional investment in the Houston Texans because of the people at the top that were running it, in particular one person at the top that was running it. But the bad man is gone, and D'Amico is back. Texans legend in his own right. He's here to save the franchise. We got C.J. Stroud. We got Will Anderson. We got a bunch of young players that I'm super excited about, especially DBs. Life is good, EJ. Life is great comparative to how it was for the past few seasons for you as a uh, closeted Texans fan in the past couple of years. But before that, an outright an open Texans fan, which is how you should be. You should get to be you. And now you get to be you under the leadership of a former legendary Texans player who we're both really excited about as a head coaching prospect. The only thing that could have gone better was if they ended up with the first overall pick. But Lovey Smith decided to you know, switch allegiances last second to the Bears. But it's okay. Yes, it is. I'm still over the moon for C.J. Stroud. They were still super aggressive in the draft. We're going to go over all that today, uh, looking at personnel changes, coaching changes, scheme changes, everything that you need to know about what should be a bounce-back season for the Houston Texans. So, Jay, Autumn, Anthony, roll the intro. Welcome, one and all, to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman. That was my lovely co-host, EJ Snyder. Uh, he's a Bears fan. I'm a Texans fan who also moonlights as a Bears fan because my dad lived in both Houston and Chicago when I was growing up. Uh, and those two teams happen to be battling for the first overall pick. You won for now. You know, we won largely because of patron saint, former patron saint <laughs> of Chicago, Lovey Smith. Who pulled a heel turn at the last minute and said, oh, yeah, really? I'll give this to them. And, you know, all credit to Lovey. And, you know, I think it worked out for both franchises in the end. Uh, we're going to talk about all the ways that the Texans took the picks they had and the picks they sold uh, to mortgage the future in what we both think is a really good way. I don't even know if I'd call it mortgaging the future. I'd say it's investing in the future because there were two things that they desperately needed 
going into this offseason. It was quarterback and edge rusher. Those were the two things, like, like easily their two biggest needs. Because they had some young receivers that we like, you know, Mechie, Nico Collins. They, they bought mm-hmm. Robbie, Bobby Trees in. Um, you know, Damian Pierce is awesome. They got some tight ends we're excited about. The offensive line, uh, you know, once Green develops a little bit more. Sure. The offensive line on paper is good. They have one of the best tackle tandems in the league. Like the structure was in place for a young quarterback to be successful. Yes. The defense though really needed an infusion of edge talent. So throughout the entire pre-draft process, it was, are we going quarterback or are we going Will Anderson? Because we knew going into it that they had a generational grade on Will Anderson. And the answer was, fuck it, both. (laughs) We'll take two. Utah, get me two. Yeah, it Uh, worked out. It absolutely worked out for them. It was one of the, I don't know, I'll just say the funnest moments of the draft where it was like, wait, wait, no, again? What? (laughs) What are they doing? Oh, they're not gonna. They're gonna. That was so much fun. We had a ton of fun, you know, chronicling that while we were in Kansas City. It was great for you. It was a moment when you got to see, hey, not only do we have the coach, but now we've got talent at both those spots. I don't have to wait, right? It's like opening both of your presents first thing on Christmas morning. So it's a really cool result. It was unexpected, big swing by them. But like you said, the top two needs and they fill them right away at the top of the draft. As positive as uh, March and April were for this team, uh, or really even going back to you know, when they brought in Tomiko months before that, as positive as this offseason has been uh, last regular season uh, was the complete opposite. It was uh, dead on arrival. Uh, It was the lowest point I would say that Texans fans have had maybe in franchise history because we knew, and I know there's some competitive, uh, but like even uh, 2013, uh, which was, yeah, that was D-Hop's rookie year. I was there at the Chargers game in San Diego and D-Hop's first game uh, where, you know, Brian Cushing uh, got the pick six and I was losing my mind. It was like 10 Texans fans in the whole stadium and I was losing my fucking mind. Um, and they won the first two weeks of 2013 and then like lost every other game of the rest of the year. Even that year was better than 2022. And like, again, Texans fans have, seen some shit yep but knowing going into last year that there was no hope like realizing that very quickly in the summer before the season even started that they had no shot that this entire year was going to be a lost year and that jack easterby at the time was still in the organization when every single texans fan wanted him gone yeah um and it, to, to flip that around to now where Jack's gone because Lovey said, get out of here. Thank God for Lovey, by the way. Again, <laughs> you can argue with him giving up the first pick, but but the fact that he got Jack out is <laughs> like it makes up for it right. to me because like you still got CJ Stroud and, and Stroud's great. Right. Um, but just seeing the change in energy from this time last year where everybody knew that it was going to suck and it sucked. To now, where it's like, we got a young quarterback, we got D'Amico, we got a roster that's honestly way underrated. Like, this is not a three-win roster like last year. Fun team. It's a remarkable change in energy. It's the first time that, like, I feel like I can wear this hoodie in public. I I do wear it in public. I walk around (laughs) L.A. in this hoodie all the time, and people give me double takes. They're like, 
what is a Texans fan? Are you advertising? Yeah. But it's it's the first time in literal years that I can wear Texans gear and like be okay with it. You know, it, it feels great. I'm glad for you and for all Texans fans. Uh, we are talking about some other teams, not this one in this preview series that are in that position this year. They are staring down the barrel of what is not necessarily going to be a fun year for their team on the football field. That is not the case for Houston and Houston fans this year. And I'm excited about that because that's not a, I, I've stared down more than a few of those myself. And it is not a fun place to be in August when everybody else is hopeful and you're like, ah, well, uh, I'll see you again next August. Not a great thing. But let's get the bad out of the way. Then we can talk about the good. 2022 results, overall record, 3-13-1, rank in the division fourth. This is probably the stake in the heart of last season. Home record, and I don't know if I've ever seen this, 0-7-1. Yeah. Like in front of the home folk, in front of the home fans, quote-unquote defending home turf, you put up a donut. Wasn't not, great. Not going to sell a lot of season tickets winning zero games in your home stadium. On the road, better, but again, not great. Three and six, last five games, two and three. So, like you said, there was a little flicker of hope. Maybe Davis Mills is the guy at the beginning of the year. Within five, six weeks, pretty clear that that's not going to be the case and that we're playing for draft pick now. The effectiveness summary reflects that. A lot of low numbers here. And again, <laughs> if you're new to the series, effectiveness summary is like golf score. Lower numbers, better. You want to be number one. So we break this out using EPA per play as the main stat for rushing offense, passing offense, rush defense, pass defense. And then we go through points scored and points allowed because, hey, that's the bottom line in the NFL after all. We take those six stats and we rank them by their league rank, how they compare to their peers. So we'll just tear the Band-Aid off right away. A lot of 30s in here. <laughs> rushing offense, 31st. Passing offense, just as good, 31st. Yeah, you're using the term good there a little loosely. Just as equal. <laughs> uh, rush defense, 24th. Pass defense, very close, 23rd. So a lot of symmetry on this team, much more so than I think almost any other team we've covered. Points scored, 30th. Points allowed, 27th. <laughs> so just to recap... So Again, trying to keep this <laughs> trying to keep this pain to a minimum. 31, 31, 24, 23, 30, and 27. They were, if nothing else, consistent. <laughs> How did this team win three games? It's amazing. It's so amazing. It's pretty rough. So we take those six league ranks as bad as they are, add them up, divide by six, average them out. That gives us our bootleg power score, which was 28. Again, one is good, 32 is bad. Nobody's going to be one or 32 because that would mean they were absolutely first in every category or absolutely last in every, every category. That's not the way football works. 28 as a power score was dead last. Yeah, like it's, it, it not only was it dead last, it was dead last by a, a significant margin. Like a difference in two points in power score is a lot. And spoiler alert for tomorrow, the Colts were the 31st uh, raw power score. And the difference was like 2.1. Yep. Keep in mind, there's six teams that were within 
like 0.7 of each other around like 18. Like yep. 18 was like the 17 to 18, you know, seven, eight teams that were within tenths of points of each other. And you're talking about a two point difference off the back of the pack. It is a lot, but it is because none of those numbers, unlike some other teams like the Bears, very good example. Bears, I think power score was like 24, 24. Yeah. Yeah. And it was because they were second in the league in rushing. They were crap and everything else, just like the Texans. But the Texans didn't have that, oh, we were top 10 in one thing. They weren't top half in anything. Yeah, it was it was so painfully bad. And there were bright spots on the roster. Like Damian Pierce, everybody figured out pretty quickly, like, oh, he is him. Um, you know, Stingley had his flashes where we saw the talent that they drafted him for. Petre had the flashes. Uh, Booker had some flashes. Laramie Tunsil was still amazing. Um, you know, Howard has proven himself to be a, a very nice piece at right tackle. Um, like there's, there's some guys on the roster that I genuinely think are very good ball players, but it was, it wasn't enough. No. And after this off season where they brought in some more juice on both sides of the ball, I do feel like the roster is in a much better spot. But it just, it was nowhere close last year. And uh, I think these numbers reflect that. Very hard to string together consistent success when you are having those flashes, but they don't happen at the same time. They don't even happen on the same side of the ball necessarily. You know, there were one play per drive last year for the Texans where it was like, oh, Nico Collins made an amazing catch. That was it for the whole drive. Mm -hmm. like, that was the only sort of standout play out of, you know, 11 guys running six plays and it was one one connection one play one hole that opened one good rush you can't win in the nfl with that kind of inconsistent production flipping over to our scheme stats to give a little bit of context to the epa numbers uh ej would you be shocked to know that the texans under lovey smith were first in cover two last year by a lot <gasps> this is my shocked face is it working it it was like comically large, comically lovey, <laughs> comically lovey. Is it what was that so was. lovey. Um, and again, you know that that type of system has worked wonders in the past. I have nothing against cover two. In fact, a lot of the defenses that were really good in the NFL called a lot of cover two. Even D'Amico called a lot of cover two in, in San Francisco. But it was just funny when you're looking at like all the percentages and Texans are like number one by a mile because <laughs> of Lovey. Um, they were 25th in cover three, which is a, a departure from what D'Amico, D'Amico's defense is going to be. There's going to be more cover three involved. Um, they were fifth in cover one last year. So it was either we're calling man coverage or we're calling cover two. Uh, they were 21st in quarters, 27th in quarter, quarter half, which can make sense. Lovey's never really leaned into that that yeah. much. Uh, and they were 31st in two man, uh, tied for 31st, excuse me, because they called it 0.0% of the time. They just, they, two man does not exist in Houston <laughs> under Lovey's. I, I can't seem to find it in the playbook, <laughs> sir. That's because it's not there. So it's, uh, it's going to be a significant uh, switch this year like cover two still will be heavily involved sure but they will mix in more cover three they will mix in more quarters they'll mix in more quarter quarter half like it's, it's going to be a more uh diverse defense in terms of coverages called 
Uh, and that that's a good thing. Like, you never want to be too one-dimensional unless you just have the guys <laughs> to do it. If you're the yeah. 06 Bears or the, you know, 2002 Bucks and, and you have five Hall of Famers, sure, fucking call cover two all the time. But uh, the Texans, as you could probably tell, did not have five Hall of Famers on that defense last year, so they couldn't get away with it. No, not likely. And predictability is one thing. I mean, you could look at almost any defensive coordinator in the league. And again, we cover these stats and scheme stats for every team and say they are predictable in that a large percentage of their calls will be this. That's not hard to figure out, folks. This isn't this isn't reading the tea leaves. This is just looking at all 22, picking up stats and saying, yeah, this is what they do. It's how they do it and what the flavors they use of that are. And really that sort of alchemy comes there, right? Yes, the shell is predictable, but when we do it and how we do it. And Lovey, if anything, tended to be more on the vanilla side of that, where you could expect not only what was coming, but when it was coming and kind of how it was coming. Uh, By the way, speaking of vanilla, uh, also, would it shock you to know that looking at the blitz rates, third down lovey smith didn't blitz he was 30th in bringing pressure on third and short he was dead last in bringing pressure on third and medium with a 10.6 percent blitz rate uh last week the buccaneers were number one at 61 percent i think it was so uh yeah a little bit of a difference there and then third and long also dead last in blitz rate at about 17 percent so uh lovey smith don't blitz and even if he doesn't have the pass rushers to get home with four he still is not going to blitz, and it was tough to watch. You should include a trigger warning before some stats, <laughs> and that's one of them. Uh, I am not sorry not to have to look at that anymore. Uh, it was one of the most frustrating things about Lovey and you know preceding Fangio coming along. Fangio did it more, but still very little. Uh, neither are big believers in heavy blitz percentages. And you don't have to be. Fangio, very effective as a defensive coordinator without. Lovey, less so. And I feel like that lack of adaptation as he's moved along was one of the things that, you know, doomed him a bit in terms of predictability is everybody, look, this is the book on Lovey and it's not going to change. That's the really dangerous part. And I think it really does come down to you can do that style if you have the dudes, if you have Tommy Harris. If sure. you have Akeem Hicks and Khalil Mack, fine. Don't blitz. You'll, you'll win with four. But they just they didn't have the dude. Yeah. That was a big reason why they drafted Will Anderson is they, <laughs> they needed to be able to win with four because it's right. not like D'Amico wants to blitz every play. Like no. There are going to be times where he wants to win with four, but if you don't have an edge that you think can go out there and kick a tackle's ass one-on-one five times in a game, sorry. It ain't going to work. <laughs> it ain't going to work. Um, looking at the... Offensive stats, and again, under Bobby Slowick, who we'll get to in a second, uh, we do expect this to, to change probably pretty significantly. Yeah. They were 23rd in outside zone, uh, which Slowick is, is coming from an outside zone, yeah. heavy background, so to speak. So I would expect for him to lean into the Shanahanigans. Can, can, can we bet the over on that, <laughs> uh, that it'll improve? It'll be more than 17%, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, inside zone, they were ninth. Um, not that, you know, Shanahan coaches 
don't call inside zone, but they definitely don't call it 27% of the time. Typically, they like to really kind of get lateral with the run game, create space, make linebackers move, because um, that, that also plays into the pass game as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, duo, they were 16th. Power, they were 9th. Counter, they were 10th. Uh, counter, I actually do think that they're, they're still going right. to heavily stick with that, especially if they become a more outside zone-oriented uh, system. Uh, draw, they were 15th, and then pin and pull, they were also 9th. So a lot of gap stuff, a uh, lot of pulling linemen, less so uh, outside zone. And, you know, Texans fans are no stranger to outside zone because we had Gary Kubiak there for a long time. I would imagine the run game is going to look uh, more Kubiak-ish than than what we've had in recent years. More Kubiak-like is a good way to describe it. And I hope they stick with counter as a fairly high percentage because of personnel, not so much because of scheme. Damian Pierce, very good cutback counter runner. Would like to see that stay. Some of his highlights from last year, he had many, but some of his great highlights from last year were on counter. Mm -hmm. It is a natural sort of handcuff or compliment, however you want to say it, to outside zone. I feel like that's one piece that Sloak probably comes in going, well, everybody knows how to run it. We're going to keep it. We're going to modify it a little bit, but I don't expect that to disappear. Outside zone, again, I would bet the over. Um, Slowick coming from his particular coaching tree. Everybody adapts as they come into a new situation. Um, But I think we're going to see more of that. And I think that may actually play to some of the strengths of other players they have on the roster, both blockers and runners. Yeah, like Devin Singletary, I think, you know, less so, I would say, like just getting north-south immediately. Not that he can't do it, but I've always felt that Singletary was at his best when he could kind of string things out a little bit, pick his spots, find his one-on-ones, and then break tackles. Because he does have really good contact balance. But I don't want to just fling him into a wall of bodies, right? I want want to give him a chance to kind of pick through things. Um, Now, passing offense overview. Again, I I expect this to to change a little bit. Uh, They were heavy on play action last year, about 29.8%. That likely will stay the same, Uh, you know, kind of help out C.J. Stroud, uh, you know, give him as many clean, uh, or rather not clean, like wide open spaces, in terms of the intermediate air of the field using play action, I expect that to to keep up. Uh, average time to throw seventh fastest. I actually think that's going to go way down this year. I would agree. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean that Stroud's going to be slow on the trigger because he's not slow on the trigger. But I would expect that the play action that we're going to see is not going to be the types of play action that we saw in Houston before where it's like, Really quick hitters, you know, off just a, a little, a little fake on inside zone from the gun. It's like no, we are under center. Mm. CJ's turning his back to the defense. We're selling the handoff. We're rolling out because he is mobile. Like he does have really good mobility. We're getting him out there where he can like take time and then try to launch a bomb down the field. So the average time to throw probably will be significantly slower. But again, not in a bad way. Um, air yards percentage. They were 18th. That's probably going to go up because C.J. Stroud has a great arm and a great deep ball. I think they will make use of that, especially to Collins. Um, Average depth of target, they were 15th at 8.9. I also expect that to go up for the same reason. Big time throw percentage, 23rd. That's going to go up because C.J. Stroud, again, throws freaking dimes deep down the field. 
and yards per attempt, 6.8, 25th. Because of all the other stats going up, that's going to go up too. The point I'm trying to make here is that C.J. Stroud has a hell of a lot better uh, time throwing further than 15 yards past the line of scrimmage than Davis Mills ever did. Uh, he's just a straight-up better quarterback. He's more accurate. He has a better arm. He's a better decision-maker. He's just better. Average time to throw, I'm with you, is going to go down for multiple reasons. Some of them good, some of them bad, but I don't mean bad in terms of bad the player they picked. I mean bad in terms of it's natural. He's a rookie playing quarterback in the NFL. He's going to get confused by some things. He does have a tendency to want to read through a play. Uh, he can be slower to pull the trigger than some of the other quarterbacks. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That can keep you out of bad decisions, just like it can keep you from making good ones early in the play. It's it's learning when to let those things off the chain in terms of uh, what our friend J.T. O'Sullivan likes to call big A anticipation, right? Yeah. It's very easy for younger quarterbacks to have little A anticipation, which is just a tick quicker than see it throw it. You're you're definitely dancing around the Will Levis reference here of Levis would get it out quick, but he would get himself into trouble well, quick. It's not by doing just that. Levis. There are a lot of quarterbacks who will a lot of one read quarterbacks and CJ Stroud is definitely not a one read quarterback. There's plenty of tape to back that up. If there was a knock on him coming out, because there are so many superlatives about him. He's got very good size is a great arm. He has great deep ball accuracy. Um, I think some of the best accuracy in the class in terms of where he puts the ball for his oh, receivers. There's stuff down the field that other guys in this class just did not do consistently. And he did consistently, very consistently. I'll put it that way. Um, but there are times where he will hold it, whether he's waiting for something to develop or he is going to his second or third or fourth read, he will hold it a little longer than he should. And we all know that there's jump and speed between even the top levels of college and pros. Everybody says it. Until he adapts, there are going to be some times where he's like, huh, 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 and that's going to put that average time to throw up a little bit. And it's just, that's natural for rookie quarterbacks. It's mm -hmm. not because he's bad or won't be good or any of that. I actually think he will be a very good, very solid pro quarterback. In his rookie season, that, that number's going to go up. There were some plays, and, and I really wish that we could put all 22 up without Ohio State sending a death squad. Um, <laughs> but, like, there were some far hash go balls that he threw to Marvin that were jaw-dropping. Like, had my jaw on the floor. Yeah, it's right here. But, like, 40 yards as the crow flies, like, yeah. hitting a dime. Yeah, 25 yards in terms of straight vertical distance on the field – you're talking about far hash you're adding in you know do the triangle math <laughs> if you're good at geometry uh if you're just not pythagorean theorem on screen <laughs> it's just it's just really freaking far and he's literally putting it in a you know foot and a half circle if you're thinking about those throwing nets that have the little circles sewn mm -hmm. into them he's hitting that circle at 35 40 45 yards and it is on the money like it couldn't yeah. be better i encourage people to go watch his combine uh workout uh where it's just everything's in rhythm and it looks so easy and i mean that like i i was on board with cj Stroud before that but seeing the combine where it just he looked like a human jugs machine yep everything was perfect it looks everything. very fluid very easy he makes 
a lot of hard things look easy and therefore people go, oh, he's not doing anything. And I'm yeah. like, no, no, try and do that. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. He just makes it all look easy. And he is very, this is a sort of preview for Texans fans, incredibly even keeled mm -hmm. as a quarterback. Like on the great throws, you're not going to see him bounce around and you know, planting the flag in the middle of the field. That's not his thing. You might get a fist pump out of him. That's about what – and on the on the misses, same thing. You might clap his hands. He's going to walk back and just good, bad, otherwise, and most of it's good, right down the middle. Very it's like calm, Eli. Very collected, yeah. sort of expects it all. Um, and I think that's a very – that's a – just a quality that's going to serve him very well in what will be an up-and-down rookie season because they are all up-and-down rookie seasons. Let's get to uh, the coaching structure that is charged with developing C.J. Stroud and ensuring that his career uh, hopefully goes as well as we think it can go. Yeah, uh, you know Nick Casario has been there for a few years, and I think he's overall um, been a very good drafter. I think there's some roster management things that I've had some disagreements mm -hmm. with. Um, but overall, as a drafter, I've really liked the work that he's done. And the coaching staff that has been assembled uh, under D'Amico, I think, is also exceptional. Um, so as far as, you know, the guys who, who have the keys to the building, I'm more confident in this group than I've been confident in a Texans power structure since... Um, probably like the O'Brien years before he was GM. <laughs> before before Bill O'Brien, the GM, sunk Bill O'Brien, the coach? Well, because Bill O'Brien, the coach, is a good coach. And Absolutely. I've, I've, I have maintained that from the beginning. And I also think that Bill O'Brien is a good person. Like, my problems with O'Brien were never about him as a man. I think he's a great man. I think he's a good football coach. Yes. But holy shit, he was a bad GM. Yeah, legendarily bad GM and and sort of you know, the right hand robbing from the left. But Nick Casario is really interesting because he came over from the Patriots. That was a move that was uh, linked, I guess, is the nicest and softest way to say that. It was a that, saga. It was, to Easterby. So it's very hard for me, at least, to sort of consider Nick Casario outside of Easterby because I actually never thought those two would exist in a vacuum, that there would be a Nick Casario without an Easterby. Now that Easterby is gone and you can sort of look back just even at the last two years of Casario's moves, uh, free agency in the draft, but the draft especially, that's really strong work. Mm -hmm. Last year, Texans were one of our top three favorite classes in the overall draft. This year, fighting for that honor again, didn't quite make it, but we're certainly in consideration without question. So Casario without Easterby is a really interesting sort of like, hey, the the future is open, like the road's wide open ahead. Let's let's floor it. And he has so far. Bringing in D'Amico is really a masterstroke, right? D'Amico has history with the Texans. He was the most, I think, valued head coaching candidate on the market. Mm -hmm. They land him mm -hmm. for multiple reasons. You can't really do better than that um, if you're going for a first-time head coach. So – Tremendous, like we could end right there. You drafted really well and you got D'Amico and like walk away. You're good. But they didn't. Obviously, D'Amico brings in his staff. Bobby Sloat, you and I were talking about this pre-podcast. 
wouldn't have brought him in if he didn't strongly believe that he was going to continue the success that he's had uh, as a position coach and a sort of analyst as he moves to the coordinator level. And, and I think there is enough of that offensive success around the league from that system replicated. There are a lot of good examples of that working and being able to assemble players that work within that, that I feel pretty confident about Slowick. Matt Burke, I know less about, but also D'Amico is a defensive coordinator. He's not gonna make his first defensive coordinator on his first head coaching stop a slouch, right? He has full faith in Burke to do very similar things to what he did as he moves into the head coaching role. So that alone, I'm gonna give him a pass. And that's a very, it's a very strong structure and it's a very different picture than what you had a year ago or certainly two years ago in the Houston organization. What I what I find interesting about Burke is, you know, he he worked his way up, uh, you know, he was at BC 20 years ago. Right. So he worked up through college, got to the Titans. Uh, you know, He was an admin assistant as his first job in the NFL. Mm hmm. He's been a quality control coach. He's been a position coach. He was a DC uh, with the Dolphins several years ago, uh, 2017, 2018. Then he was a special assistant. Then he was a run game coordinator again. And then he went to the Jets and he was a game management coach a couple <laughs> years ago. And so he's kind of done a little bit of everything. And I really like that higher because of that right yeah. like having somebody at the coordinator level on your team who's at one point recently his entire job was learning everything you need to know about clock management and situational football and he's also been a dc before and you know obviously D'Amico's one of the best defensive minds in football but having that experience in your toolkit um, you know, being on that staff so that D'Amico can lean on him and say, what do we do here yeah. when it's, you know, 230 to go and there's X number of timeouts and you're on this wow. yard line like he's done that before. And so he can get kind of real time advice from somebody who who that was their entire world. Right. Um, it's a it's such a unique uh, strength to have for one of your coordinators and and. I think that was one of the big reasons why probably D'Amico brought him on was was to help with that kind of stuff. We talk about building rooms all the time when we're talking about players. It's also important when you're building a coaching staff, right? You're building a room. You're building a literally a room of folks that you can bounce things off of in you know your head coaching tenure. In this case, it's D'Amico's first shot at the brass ring. And he wants to surround himself with people that have varied experiences that he can lean on. And it doesn't just end with the coordinators. On offense, he's got Bill Lazor as a senior offensive assistant. Now, Bill Lazor, one of my favorite, I'll just say coaches because I don't want to say coordinator or position coach. Just one of my favorite football coaches out there. He's been an NFL OC three times, Dolphins, Bengals, and Bears. Has a system based on efficiency, and he's found success at every stop. Started as an assistant at Cornell in the 90s. I love this. Were you still around <laughs> there in the 90s? Was that before I missed you him? <laughs> I missed him by like two years oh, because uh, I did work part time at Cornell, not in the football program, just was employed by Cornell uh, summer of 90. 
2002 was the last time I was there. And he was there actually after that, a couple of years. But I just find it fascinating. He, he definitely went to the bagel shop you worked at. <laughs> uh, probably, probably. Um, but then he went to the University of Buffalo before landing with the Falcons and starting his NFL journey. But every place that Bill Lazor has had uh, a significant role in the offense, we've seen really good success. It was Andy Dalton's best years with the Bengals. It was a three-game stretch with the Bears where Matt Nagy went, somebody else has to call plays. And the Bears put up 30 straight points in three straight weeks for the first time in like five years. And then Nagy was like, I'll take that back. And then they went back to being mediocre. Like Bill Lazor knows how to coach, especially offensive football. Another, you know, tremendous person to lean on in this staff that has a, you know, very generic title, senior offensive assistant, like for Bobby Sloak and the rest of the offensive coaches to go, Bill, (laughs) what do you do when, this happens or mm-hmm. we saw this last week how do you fix that he can just sort of sit in the background and he seems comfortable doing that at this point in his career so a tremendous addition um shane day is a senior offensive assistant 15 seasons coaching in the nfl most recently was the passing game coordinator qb coach for the chargers also spent two years in san francisco coaching so hence his ties to this particular staff as well as stops with the bears commanders and dolphins Gerard Johnson is the QB coach. I love this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the assistant QB coach in Minnesota last year. Spent time as a player in three leagues, NFL, CFL, and UFL. He was a Sacramento Mountain Lion. Love that. <laughs> Where he was the number one overall pick in their 2011 draft. So, again, just varied experiences, building a room of all kinds of different leagues, coaching styles, experiences that they can pull on and pull together in this first year with a really talented group. We're going to talk about the personnel as we get into this, but this is not a roster that is bereft of talent, which is often the case when you're pulling in a completely new coaching staff. It's like, no, we got to start from the ground up. This is not that roster. So having experienced coaches who can make this go from the get-go is, I think, an underrated portion of why this team's being slept on a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. They're better like on the player side and the coaching side than I think a lot of people realize. On the defensive side, they did the same thing. They brought in a Kiffin because, yes. you know, if you want to have a good defense, you hire somebody with the last name Kiffin. Kiffin. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chris Kiffin, Lane's brother, Monty's son. Um, so he's going to be a linebacker coach for them. Obviously, the Kiffins have a tremendous D-line legacy. Um, and you know what? Considering how much cover two we expect them to run, yeah. That, that makes sense. Bring in somebody who's who's uh, related to one of the godfathers of cover two. Uh, Corey Unlin is the defensive pass game coordinator, served a similar role with Tamiko in San Francisco. So they heavily rated uh, the 49ers staff. <laughs> Come with me. <laughs> Seems to happen to to Kyle and, and, and McVay down here in L.A. Uh, I don't know, like every 18 months or so, they just lose 40% of their staff. It's the price of being a good organization. It is the price of being a quality coach, for sure. Now, uh, all of that information in mind, the scheme stuff that we laid out, our expectations for how those schemes are going to change, uh, you know, the 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 notes that we had about C.J. Stroud, um, you know, the, the coaching staff that's going to be leading C.J. Stroud, all of that information then leads into the question, okay, offensively, what do we expect to actually be the strength of this offense? 
because we like C.J. Stroud as a quarterback. We love Damian Pierce as a running back. Dalton Schultz as a signing at tight end was like one of the most underrated free agent signings anywhere in the league. Not to mention, there's a quartet of receivers that we all like for different reasons. So there are a bunch of names here to parse through. But in terms of where are we investing, uh, like, say, when it comes to fantasy football, it's a pretty hard decision to make, especially at receiver. Yeah, in a first year, again, moving into a new system with new coaches, a different mix of players than they have used in the past, they're going to have to understand their strengths and employ them correctly to get the results you're looking for. I'm going to start with Damian Pierce, though. Because Damian Pierce is, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? (laughs) Like, we have a great running back. We have a rookie quarterback. We have a hopefully improved offensive line that we've invested some high picks in. We feel good about them. We have a system coming in that we drafted those players for in terms of the ones they picked up this year. Like, we're going to run the ball and take pressure off our rookie quarterback. As old as time, right? Damian Pierce is like, bring it. He's that guy. What's so crazy, though, is he's going as RB21. That's like a late RB2. Yeah, I think that's low. How? How is he going as RB21? Because they don't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Because anybody that's a bootleg truther uh, knows that we have been Damian Pierce truthers since his time at Florida and said, no, no going to be good it's going to be we said last year he's going to be good quickly he's going to start i think i said when he got drafted he was going to be a top 10 running back in the nfl within two years i think that's what i said i know he was on our 10 gems episode yeah um which is an episode that we do every single year we do a 10 gems for offense and a 10 gems for defense and this is like in february right this yeah. is months before the draft and it's basically like 10 guys that we just really we just love <laughs> and and damian pierce was one of them to my recollection Yes. But, you know, he went in the fourth round at the time. We were like, OK, is, is there bodies hidden in the desert somewhere that we don't know about? And not to mention, like, Florida never really gave him work. And we're like, he's beating the shit out of everybody every time he touches the ball. What what are we missing here? And of course, he goes to the NFL and looks really good. Uh, so I, I don't know. RB21 seems insane to me for an offense that, again, we expect to run the ball a significant amount. And his top competition for carries is Devin Singletary, who we like as an RB2, but he's not going to get half the carries. You know, it's let this be a lesson to you. Listen to this podcast. Take advantage of your friends in fantasy football. Absolutely. Draft Damian Pierce. Dalton Schultz also going as tight end 14. Seems We, we need to talk about this because Dalton Schultz, like you said, one of the most underrated certainly the most under talked about additions anywhere in the league in free agency this year period like comes into a situation where a rookie quarterback is hopefully going to want to establish a safety blanket dalton schultz is the ultimate version of that he is clearly tight end one like Mm -hmm. no competition from day one when you sign dalton schultz he's te1 he's getting all those reps he has a ton of experience Coming into an offense where they know how to feature tight ends, not only between the 20s, but also in the red zone, 
Kittle had a ton of touchdowns. I'm not saying Dalton Schultz is Kittle. He's not, but they understand how to utilize the position. This is not an offense that isolates the tight end as a fifth option or something. Like, clear TE1. Offense knows how to use the tight end. Rookie quarterback looking for a safety blanket. Like, why is he not more highly rated? He is the intermediate threats, or the intermediate threat, I should say, uh, when they're running like crossers with a bootleg. Like, it's it's fucking the Owen Daniels role. Like, it's the same thing. It's literally the same role. Owen Daniels and was the wide tight end in Houston under a similar system with Gary Kubiak and like three times a game, it's Matt Schaub rolling out. Owen Daniels is 12 yards past the line of scrimmage, just hanging out, waiting for the ball. Like, it's the same thing. And he's going as tight end 14. And you know what? He's better than Owen I was going to say. <laughs> and he's really good at it. It's not just the same role. So he's being dropped into this sort of custom-made, picture-perfect role. And he's really good. Like, he's already proven that. This is not a rookie. I don't understand why that ranking is attached to him. Again, take advantage of it. Yeah, it's just people people don't pay attention to the Texans, which is fine because you know <laughs> we, we we profit off of it when we're doing best ball. Sure. Um, you know Stroud's going as QB twenty six, which you know again for I get game, it fine. Yeah. But the thing that I don't get, and this is like if I'm trying to make money on underdog off of CJ Stroud. You look at the season-long totals because you can do season-long pickems on underdog, correct? Where they give you like, uh, you know, yardage for the year and touchdowns for the year. Thirty-four hundred yards flat is C.J. Stroud's mm. projection. In what universe is a quarterback in this structure of offense with weapons and good protection only throwing for thirty-four hundred yards? Like he would have to get injured. For that to not happen so yeah i'm smashing that 3400 get out of here come on now i think it's tighter than you may think but i'm still on the plus side of that and it's because i think about the years in which and again we're basing most of this on projections from san francisco right and their style of offense there's times when they've leaned extremely heavily into the run game and quote unquote, taking the ball out of the hands of their quarterback more than other franchises and devaluing taking the out of Jimmy's hands more than I'm, other franchises. I'm not saying the same quarterbacks, but I'm saying we've seen that trend before when this offense encounters difficulty. That's one of the things they do. And in that case, with a rookie quarterback, it's possible that he would be close to that number. I still think he would be on the north side of that. Like with you, if he stays healthy, plays most of the snaps with this core of offensive support, I have a hard time not seeing 3,500 plus. Because that's basically saying, I think he's going to average less than 200 yards a game. Like that's what 3,400 is. Yeah, and quite a bit less, actually, like 180 something per and, game. Which in the modern NFL is a very you, poor you, game. You got to be like actively bad to average less yeah, than if you, 200 if yards. If you get to the end of Sunday and you look up your quarterback stats and he threw for 173. You better have run the ball 35 times. You're probably <laughs> not going to win. Like unless there's a three touchdown number attached to that. But and if you're saying he's going to average that for the entire season, that there's not going to be any peaks, that there's not going to be any highlights. And we've seen his ability 
to hit the open deep ball. Nico Collins is good at going and getting it, um, as are multiple other players on this roster. You know, Damian Pierce is going to support him. Dalton Schultz is going to support him. The offensive line is going to support him. Under 3,500 seems thin to me if he stays healthy. Uh, one last note on the receivers. Nobody really knows who to invest in at receiver here. And I'll be perfectly honest, even I don't know who to invest <laughs> in a receiver. Like Nico Collins is their top uh, rated receiver in terms of ADP is at wide receiver 60, yep. which is way down there. Uh, John Mechie's at wide receiver 76. Robert Woods at 86. Tank Dale wide receiver 94. These numbers will get sorted out in camp. They will get sorted out in preseason. I don't want to give an opinion on it right now because, quite frankly, I'm not entirely sure who is going to be in the top three when they're in 11 personnel. Like, I would love to assume that Robert Woods is going to be one of those top three because of the value that he brings as a running threat, as a blocker, tough over the middle, all that kind of stuff. But, like, John Mechie does a lot of the same stuff that Robert Woods does. And if he's all the way back back and he's younger, like maybe he's cutting significantly into Bobby Tree snaps. Nico Collins plays an entirely different role as like a, an outside receiver. Uh, and then Tank Dell, I have to assume, is going to be in competition for like the Z spot for them. But again, I, I, I don't know how to parse out this receiving core yet i think it's talented enough mm -hmm. i just don't know who's playing what role yeah do you know what a wag is no wild ass guess <laughs> are you gonna take a wild ass guess about i'm gonna this? coin a term a <laughs> wab a wild ass bet okay i'm gonna take a wild ass bet on john matchy being better than wide receiver 76 i mean i wouldn't say that's wild well, again, people don't pay attention to the Texans. That's his current ranking. I think you're going to do better than that, just sort of on percentage points. If, you're, again, we're looking for value, which we are. That's, you know, that what we're trying to provide to you. I'm going to put a wab on Mechie that he's going to be better than wide receiver 76. Plus or minus 700 yards. For Mechie? Yeah. Plus. So more than, like, say, an average Tyler Boyd year. Yes. Okay. That's a wild-ass bet. I'll take it. I mean, Mechie's good. I think we, we didn't get to see him last year, but he's good. We didn't get to see him. I'm assuming he's all the way back, that he's been fully cleared medically. Don't I mean, certainly he's back practicing football. We've heard that, but not a doctor. Not going to claim that. Um, I think he fits really well with the way C.J. Stroud throws, if that makes any sense. Like hmm. when Stroud is working underneath, I think Mechie is going to – make himself a favored target very, very quickly. As in, you know, he's the guy who can count on third and six, work against leverage, go find space, CJ's going to find you. And he can create some yak after that. We saw yeah. that at Alabama. Now, it's been a bit, and I was higher on Mechie, most folks know that, than, than most other folks. Um, really liked his potential. If he's healthy and all the way back, I think he's going to be one of CJ Stroud's new best friends. Well, if we gave you uh, any ideas for, <laughs> for how best to exploit people's uh, lack of interest in the Texans for your own fantasy football team, uh, you can, of course, use our promo code bootleg over underdog fantasy. They will match your deposit up to $100. So 
whatever you put in up to that hundred, they will double it for you. You can use it on anything on the platform. So if you want to do Best Ball Mania, where uh, you know maybe go for that fifteen million dollars that they've sure. got in the prize pool, uh, or if you're doing season long pickums like we mentioned, you know with C.J. Stroud at thirty four hundred egregiously <laughs> or if you're doing in-season pickums uh, you know you can fill them out every single week on game days and you know make watching uh buccaneers games a little bit more bearable <laughs> you know again whatever you want to do the world's your oyster and it's not even just for football there's also basketball hockey baseball esports everything like that so uh, again promo code bootleg over underdog fantasy they are uh the wind beneath our wings they make this entire show possible we are eternally grateful for their support. And uh, every time you support them, it supports us. Uh, it helps us literally to make this show. Yeah. Uh, all right. With that, EJ, let's get to free agency. Uh, again, one of my, uh, or rather I should say, one of the things that most impressed me <laughs> with Casario this offseason was how he handled free agency and just kind of the March roster churn in general. Uh, because, again, there were a lot of moves made on this roster, but overall I do feel like they got a lot better when taking their uh, losses in, a, uh, in summation with their gains. Casario turned this roster over. There were a lot of players on this losses list that were picked up um, in specific periods of the Texans' history where they needed to bolster a room, <laughs> plug a hole, do a lot of things. Cheap talent. You can say cheap talent. Uh, it, it is that in many ways. And look, it's an opportunity for the player, but it's an also an opportunity for the team to assess whether or not they want to keep that player on, whether or not they fit the new system. And anytime a new coach comes on, you're going to see fairly significant turnover as well. This was a perfect storm of both. A lot of those short contracts coming due and a new coaching staff that wasn't necessarily interested in the same skill set. Lots and lots and lots of turnover. We're not going to hit it all in terms of significant turnover. AJ can the right guard played 94% of their snaps. Uh, Rasheem Green, the edge uh, only played 50% of their snaps. But again, for a team looking for pass rush, if they're going to lose somebody, uh, they're going to have to replace him. Ogbonio Okoronkwo, this was the one, went to the Browns, only played 44% of their snaps, signed for $6 million, good rotational rusher. If any of them hurt in terms of losing on the defensive line, this is probably the one I'd mark. Uh, Brandon Cooks, the eternal Brandon Cooks. <laughs> Traded again. <laughs> how many times has he played for a different team? He's played for how many different teams? Well, in, specific, in specific, like how many times has he been traded? And how many times has he been traded for a first-round pick? Like three? I think it was three first-round. This one obviously wasn't for a first-round pick, but I think this is like his fourth time getting traded. Yeah. Super impressive receiver. One of those people that always you can sign him up for a 1,000 yards and just pretty much book it. But he moves on. Jonathan Owens goes to the Packers. He played 82% of the Texan snaps last year. Uh, Philip Dorsett moves on to the Raiders. He played 43% of the snaps, again, as a situational wide receiver. That's a lot. And Chris Moore goes on to the Titans. He played 63% of the snaps. I was really surprised by that. I just looked it up, by the way, because um, I was like, I wonder if, if that is a record. Uh, yes, uh, Brandon Cooks. Did holds the record. Set the record for all-time most traded player um, beating out. Do you know who? No. 
Eric Dickerson. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So anyway, random NFL trivia that you're never going to use. No, <laughs> don't be so sure. Uh, in terms of who they did actually retain, uh, they brought back Scott Quesenberry on a $2 million deal. Tavir Thomas, they brought back also on a $2.2-ish million deal. Uh, Laramie Tunsil was the big one. $25 million a year and worth every single penny. Other than Trent, he's the best pass-protecting left tackle in football. Obviously, isn't the same run blocker as Trent, but he has been so worth everything they invested in terms of the picks they sent to Miami, all the contracts they've paid out. It is, it is so hard to find a left tackle as consistent as him. Um, and he's still only 29. Like, there's a lot of good years left. $25 million is a bargain. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Laramie Tunsil is the name in lights on this particular list. Tavier Thomas is the one I want to talk about. 2.2 is ridiculous for a player of his talent. Mm -hmm. Like, he is a guy we brought up last year as an underrated talent at the nickel spot. Doesn't have the consistency yet that I think you'd want to be able to invest even bigger dollars in, but his highs are extremely high at that position. And I am, if I'm just sort of drumming my knees, ridiculously excited for players that could blossom under the new defensive system, like put a, put a bookmark on Tavier Thomas. Texans are one of those teams that has like five guys that can play nickel. <laughs> There's only one nickel spot, but pretty much their entire secondary, if you wanted them to, could play nickel. And he's one of them. Uh, in terms of third-party additions, again, deep breaths, folks. Uh, the, a lot. It's so much roster churn. I really want to emphasize how different this team looks. So they brought in Hassan Ridgeway for $3.2 million from the 49ers. Go figure. Uh, Jimmy <laughs> Ward also brought in from the 49ers to, I guess, help with install, in addition to the fact that Jimmy Ward's a good player, but in terms of somebody that all these young DBs can go to to ask questions where it's like, hey, how do we handle yeah. so-and-so? What does he really look? want? <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, what, are, what are the rules for how we handle three-by-one from this, 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 this? Um, like, Jimmy's going to be able to help with that. Uh, Devin Singletary, as I mentioned, brought in for under $3 million to be the RB2. Case Keenum, back in Houston again <laughs> for a $3 million deal. Um, Shaq Mason, they brought in for eleven point six. Uh, well, technically, it's a trade, but he's gonna he's gonna cost them eleven point six. Um, Dalton Schultz for six point two million was a steal for a player of his caliber. Sheldon Rankins at just under ten million, also to fill out that interior defensive line rotation. He's gonna be a starter for them, probably play i would imagine 40 to 50 percent of the snaps just for how we know D'Amico sends guys in waves um robert woods as we mentioned brought in for 7.6 million uh and then denzel perryman the ageless denzel perryman at 31 still going strong two and a half million just to be an absolute ass kicker uh in the middle of the field like, this is a lot of guys. Like, I didn't even name everybody, but this is a lot of guys. Like, Jacob Martin's back, super explosive edge that can give them, uh, you know, high-value snaps on third down. It's a lot, man. It's just a lot. Shaq Mason's the one I want to talk about in terms of almost a force multiplier, right? You bring him in, you automatically shore up one spot, but you also make the line – 
I think sort of exponentially stronger because you've already got your tackles taken care of. You know, you draft a center who we're going to talk about, who you really believe in, but you surround him now with a couple of guards, including Shaq Mason, who's played at a very high level throughout his NFL career. And it just makes that entire five that much better. I thought that was a really sort of savvy move. Don't know why he was available again, but I really do feel like offensive lines are as strong as their weakest link. And you make what was one of the weaker links in this particular line that much stronger. It just helps everybody around him. They're starting five all the way across is Larry Tunsil, top three overall left tackle in the league. Kenyon Green, a young left guard with a lot of promise. You got Juice Scruggs, a center prospect that we're big fans of. Shaq Mason, solid right guard. Titus Howard, solid right tackle. The best offensive lines in the league are the ones that don't have one guy you can pick on. Kenyon Green was like the guy that got picked on last year, but if he can just be average, and if Juice ends up being what we think Juice is, where who are you going to pick on on that offensive line? It's it's as solid as you can get, which for a young quarterback, oh my God, that's a godsend. I feel like, Again, this is one of those pieces that people are sort of underrated. Like, it's a sneaky good roster, and I think a better landing place for a young quarterback than is typical. In terms of the draft, round one, pick two, C.J. Stroud, we've talked a lot about him. Round one, pick three, (laughs) one pick later. (laughs) They come back up, they get Will Anderson out of Alabama, who is an incredible player. We haven't really talked a lot about him, but... I think he's going to be very good quickly because he's not a one-trick pony in any way. He's gotten better. He got better every year that he was at Alabama, even though some of the more flashy production numbers weren't as high. His sort of overall game rounded out. His pressure numbers were extremely high, which is, if you listen to this podcast, more meaningful than Sachs. Um, Very, very high floor player. Could Mm -hmm. also be a high ceiling player. But the chances he's going to be bad are almost zero, almost nothing. Yeah. And and also, I will say that stylistically, um, he he fits a lot of what D'Amico likes because he's very good on stunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and D'Amico, you know, you look at his time in San Francisco, like they they believed in doing funky stuff with four guys. Uh which sounds a lot dirtier than I intended it to be, but uh, like they, they they would line up like um, you know Charles Amenahu is like a, a a one technique, and then he's looping all the way around, and like Nick Bosa was slashing everywhere, and it was just stunts all over the place. And, and Will Anderson, a lot of his pressures at Bama came off stunts because he's very good at executing them, yeah. and and people don't realize that there's a lot of technique that goes into being good at stunts. Um, I will say. I, I hope that he can get stronger um, because, you know, you watch him against Tennessee and Darnell Wright, like he got swallowed up a little bit. Again, God, sounds a lot dirtier than I intended it to be. But like in terms of like going straight into Wright's chest and, and getting movement, like that was that was one thing that I, I feel he struggled at. I mean, Wright's like 330 pounds, so I get it. But other than that, he's got everything you want. He's got a wicked first step. He's great on stunts. He's got great hands. He's got great feet. His motor never quits. He's he's amazing in the locker room. Like, not even great, just amazing in the locker room. 
it's a D'Amico Ryan's type of edge rusher. He's not Nick Bosa, but he's a hell of a lot better than everybody else that the Texans had. Right. One of the reasons or many of the reasons they felt comfortable giving assets up to come get him, uh, not just because they needed to fill somebody in at the position, but they could look at who he was as a player and say, we're comfortable with the player. We're comfortable with the improvement. We're comfortable with the person. It's okay. We can spend the picks and get this now. Round two, pick 62. This is both sort of surprise and joy for you and I. Center Juice Scruggs out of Penn State. Now, full disclosure, we interviewed Juice at this year's Shrine Bowl. You can go look at that interview on this channel. We both came away kind of smitten with him as a player. <laughs> we both were like, man, that guy's he's going to be a set. He's going to start sometime in his career in the NFL. We didn't know it's week one. <laughs> we both predicted like a late third at best, but probably early to mid fourth round range. We thought that was Completely appropriate. He gets picked in the second. Mm -hmm. We're both like, okay. So they liked him even more than we did. And we thought we were, you know, true defenders of the Juice Scrug, you know, draft legacy. He's going to start for them. I sort of couldn't be more excited. And I hope he's as good as they think he is because man, is he a really cool guy to sit down and get to know and listen to how his head works about being an offensive lineman, about playing center, which is a different spot than anything else. Um, we're big fans of his, but even we weren't this big of fans of his. I will say, from a system fit perspective, it's perfect because he was one of the best zone centers in this class in terms of quickness, yeah. first step, agility, balance, everything like that. Like being able to reach a one technique by yourself and not lose front side. Like that is huge for this type of, of run game. And honestly, them picking him in the second round was what convinced me right. that they're going to be running a lot of outside zone because you don't pick juice in the second round unless you're running a shitload of outside zone. Um, other than John Michael Schmitz, he was arguably the best outside zone center in this class. Um, but the fact that he could also call protections, and again, we, we talked to him about protections in our interview, and, and we were asking him how, how he blocks up certain fronts. We were asking him, you know, different techniques that he's using against uh, different run blocking techniques that, that he uses against different alignments for, for defensive tackles and, um, you know, adjustments that he makes to the line of scrimmage. Like, he's so, so smart. Um, and... It's so lofty, but I think that he could be their new Chris Myers, if you remember Chris Myers, uh, you know, late 2000s with the Texans, where again, great at calling protections, mastered the offense, great first step, super, uh, super fluid in space, very unheralded center at the time, but yeah. like Juice could be that for them, and he could be that quickly. So I, I don't think that they would have taken him in the second round unless they were fully confident that their system was a perfect fit for them. And I, I tend to agree with that. Felt like a defining move at the time, sort of sticking the ground. You know, we're going to do this. Um, couldn't be happier for Juice. Really excited to see how he does in the pros. Round three, pick 69, just seven picks later. Come back and get Nathaniel Tank Dell out of Houston. 
wildly undersized receiver who is also wildly explosive and a much more complete receiver than just the small fast guy. Great routes, great hands, understands leverage, is obviously tough as hell at his size. I got an appreciation for his game when I went back and really studied the tape as opposed to just the highlights as to how complete he is and really came away with the only limitation for him being, look, he just ain't that big. Mm-hmm. Well, it's what, 166? It's like 165, 166 pounds, but so explosive, ridiculously hard to get your hands on. Also a small target to hit. We've seen that before with you know short running backs who can make themselves skinny getting through a hole, all that kind of thing. Um, Tank Dell, just very, very difficult to keep up with because he is so quick, has great releases, and really understands the receiver position and is deadly in the red zone. Yeah, I mean, one of the most productive red zone receivers that we've ever seen. Like the, it, it, it kind of uh, is fascinating because you look at a 166 pound receiver and you're like, how is he good in the red zone? Well, there's more ways to score than fades, you know? And if you can separate and separate quickly in small areas, you're going to get the ball inside the 20 yard line. And that's what he does. He is a separator. My concern with him was never about route running. It was never about release package. It was never about speed. It was never about hands. Cause you look at his senior bowl tape and he was smoking everybody. Like he was by far the most impressive receiver at the senior bowl. My only concern was if he's going over the middle, can he survive getting hit? And if he just puts on like 10 pounds and gets up to Devonta Smith weight, or Jalen Waddle weight. Or Jalen Waddle weight. Yeah, it's like mid 170s, I think is what he was at last year. I'm good with it. Um, I And who knows? Maybe he's already well on his way to doing that, but he's got to get at least to that. Yeah. Or I would have like serious concerns about durability. Round four, pick 109. They come back at Edge Dylan Horton out of TCU. <sighs> Just an ass kicker. Uh, has some Ryan Kerrigan to his game. Ooh, good pull. Just likes to beat people up isn't super bendy but he's super tough understands leg leverage really strong plays with that kind of consistent push off the edge is an edge setter I certainly see his role in this defense round five pick 167 linebacker henry toto from alabama like him super smart and i think this was a D'Amico pull yeah, well, I mean, from one Alabama linebacker to the no, other. <laughs> I think this was a D'Amico pull. Like, I can work with him, like specifically him. His skill set, his brain, sure he talked to him one-on-one and said, I can mold him. He fits in his defense. We're down around five. We're taking him. He's mine. Uh, round six, pick 201, center Jarrett Patterson out of Notre Dame. Guy that was on a lot of preseason lists for, you know, possible All-America status, this, that, the other. Faded a bit down the stretch. Not I think through any bad thing that he did, other people got a little bit more shine. He didn't test particularly well. Solid is the word I would use. And and I love your Chris Myers pull for juice, but I would use it for Patterson as well in terms of a unheralded center, technically proficient, not necessarily overwhelming in speed or power, but in the right place at the right time, understands the role. Um, I think it'd be a very good... I think he's going to be a backup inside linebacker or backup inside linebacker, backup inside lineman for them, not just specifically a center. And I think he'll be good at that. 
Other pick in round six, four picks later, 205. Xavier Hutchinson from Iowa State. Okay, I'm going to let you talk about Xavier Hutchinson because I was lower on him. I actually thought this was appropriate value. I... I became obsessed with Xavier Hutchinson. I know. (laughs) Like going into the senior bowl, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm all about that. Like he was, he was the guy that I was most excited about, um, during senior bowl week or going into senior bowl week. And obviously tank Dell stole the show. But like, if you watch Xavier Hutchinson on film, it's just smooth. And he has size, but he's not the biggest guy. He has quickness, but he's not the quickest guy. He has some deep speed, but he's not the fastest guy. But he catches everything, like absolutely everything. And he's so smooth, and he's a great route runner. I understand why um, why he went in the sixth round, because from a, a physical like numbers perspective, there's nothing that really stands out that you can bank on like uh from traits wise Mm -hmm. but it's it's purely a film grade gut feeling type of player because you watch him play football and you're like god that's a good football player Mm -hmm. and he's gonna make the roster this year and i think that this is not a pick for 2023 it's a pick for 2024 because they have a bunch of other guys that we've already talked about like tank dell is super explosive robert woods is the veteran there you know john mechie was a highly drafted player that is very talented in his own right um, you know, you still got Nico Collins, who is, is extremely talented as an outside receiver. So Xavier is going to be wide receiver five at best, but he's going to be there. Like he's too good for them to even risk putting on the practice squad to me. Uh, I love, love, love that pick. And eventually he will get his shot. And I think he's going to pay it off. Cool. <laughs> I know. I'm the only Xavier <laughs> Hutchinson truther out there. But believe me, he's good. All right. I'll believe you. Round seven, they finish off strong in the draft. Pick 248. Safety Brandon Hill out of Pittsburgh. Hitter, attitude player, special teams guy. This is a another feels like another D'Amico pick to me that I'm I'm picking this guy because he fits our system. And he also sort of to me fits in that mold of safeties that San Francisco's invested in later on down, fourth round, fifth round, sixth round, who they've had great success with. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Looking beyond the draft, by the way, in terms of their UDFA hall, they did have a few names that I also think have an outside shot of making it here. Um, Ollie Gay is one that stands out to me just because like they need even more guy like I, they brought in a bunch of young players mm-hmm. uh, like you know you drafted will anderson like jacob martin i still believe in like the, there is a collection of edges here mm-hmm. um i still think that ali gay uh has a shot to make it in this group there's not a lot of groups around the nfl that i think ali gay would make the roster this is one that there's a chance um not a great chance but a chance <laughs> so you're telling me there's a chance uh Killian Zierer, uh the tackle out of Auburn I know you highlighted I did not get to him so I'll let you speak on him uh Zazavian Valade is the last one I want to talk about uh as a running back that you and I both saw at the Shrine Bowl um I thought he could have gotten drafted so you know mm-hmm. priority UDFA status makes sense and in, in, in this particular running back room he has a shot to be like RB4 for them you know special teamer um had a very very nice Shrine Bowl week so um I have to imagine that between Juice and Zazavian and, and, you know, 
Hutchinson and Tank Dell, the, the Texans were obviously very active during All-Star Week. Yeah, they, they definitely picked players who had standout performances in both of the college all both of the top college all-star games. Xavier Valade, I thought was a great two-way player. Really smooth, but has some explosion to his game. Um, had a really nice final year at Arizona State. Uh, everybody there loves him. Surprised that he didn't get drafted, but again, we see it every year. We see very talented UDFA running back or very talented running backs making it into the UDFA ranks, then making it onto rosters uh, and contributing. Uh, Killian Zer. I'm not sure how to say his last name. Offensive tackle out of Auburn. Foreign-born player. Worked with Duke, who had great things to say about his power. Oh, if he's a Manny Weather guy. He's a Manny All right, Weather we're good. Guy. We're yep, good. That was, that was the kicker. I, was, I noticed like his size and strength profile. And then Duke was saying some very nice things about him pre-draft. And in terms of his improvement and uh, his potential ceiling based on what Duke was seeing. And I was like, okay. Yeah, like, guy that played up. in the SEC with a lot of raw size, talent, and power who Duke is high on. Okay, I like that. Duke, Duke fixed Trey Pipkins. All right, we're we're fine. Yeah. Like he can do anything. And then we had Emory Hunt on the podcast pre-draft and uh, on our Shadow Sleepers episode. And Gay was one of the guys that Emory pulled out and said, you know, not necessarily last year, but the year before. If you look at how he played. For LSU, like I feel like there's a lot of potential there to be that heavy-handed, edge-setting, edge player who every team needs. I really like his physical potential. I think there's something there. So three players, again, that you get for free in terms of draft capital that could contribute to your roster down the road. You know, I think he could potentially be better than Sam Montgomery. So, you know, that's music to Texans fans' ears right there. Uh, all right. Sorry, I'm just bringing out as many former Texans as I can think of in this episode. Get it. <laughs> uh, that brings us to our report card, where uh, if, if you're not familiar with this segment, we have four categories that we grade. Front office, coaching, offensive talent, and defensive talent. And this is basically grading uh, whether or not we think they got better, worse, or stayed the same this offseason. And stayed the same does not mean negative. It just means stayed the same. Yeah, uh, neutral. And, and you can interpret that how you will. Starting with front office, uh, I would say up. Um, not that there's been a change in the front office, but in terms of my feelings on the front office, because we are, we or I should say we had questions about, okay, what would this front office do without Jack Easterby in the building? Like, what what is it going to look like when it's very clear that, Nick Casario's running the show and you know they said oh Nick Nick was running the show last year and it's like well Jack got fired because he started nosing himself into everybody's business again literally and, and, and Lovey said get the fuck out and yeah. and by the way that is public information like Lance Zerlin who's Zerline who is as plugged in as anybody into that building was the one who let that slip was that Jack got fired because he started meddling again, and Lovey said, I'm not having it. I don't yeah. care if I'm out of here. You're out of here first. Yeah. So that's why I will always love Lovey is because <laughs> he got rid of Jack. Um, but I, I think the the claims last year that 
it was purely Nick running the show and that Jack wasn't meddling. No, that wasn't true. Jack tried to meddle again. Um, but this offseason, because Jack was gone, we know that it was Nick running the show, and I think that he did a fantastic job. And so my feelings on the front office as a whole are uh, much improved, I would say. Yeah, good, strong work in free agency. Some have-to moves, some nicely done, didn't-have-to moves. Another strong draft, as much as you can grade a draft on the face of it. Two solid years of talent acquisition through the draft. And you go out and you get D'Amico to say yes to be your coach. I got to say it. Coaching. Um, I mean, <laughs> this is going to take five seconds. It's up. Way up. <laughs> whatever whatever the most up is. One thumb, two thumb, three thumbs. It's, it's way, way up. Offensive talent. Also way way up you're adding a young quarterback who we love you know you're getting john mechie for what is essentially his new rookie season uh you're you're adding young receivers like tank dell and hutchins that we like you're adding robert woods you still have damian pierce but you're adding dalton schultz you're adding more offensive line pieces like Shaq mason Shaq mason Th this roster this year to last year it's not even comparable it's so much better and then finally, defensive talent, um, largely the same. I thought uh, maybe we could argue for up just because of the additions they made to the edge rotation and and you know to the linebacker room. But um, the secondary is mostly the same. I would say most of the starters are the same. It's just the depth is better and the rotation is better. So I would accept up here. But out of an abundance of caution, just because a lot of the depth is young, we'll just kind of go even here. Feels like that's the thing here is that that starting rotation, with the notable exception of Will Anderson, which is a notable exception, is largely the same. But what's behind them, what backs them up, certainly waves of rotation throughout the defensive line and the pass rushing edges is better. So that feels like a what I would call a very strong neutral to me. It's mm -hmm. largely the same, but if they falter or have injuries, they're in a better spot to uh, withstand that. And I think last year, you know, you look at the EPA numbers and everything like that, and they were bottom of the barrel. But I, I truly do think it's because the system that was being played was not one that maximized the talent that was on the field, which then leads us to ceiling and floor. I left mine blank because I, I wanted you to be surprised by this. Okay, I'll be surprised, I promise. My ceiling for the Texans is 10 wins. Okay. Which is fighting for a playoff spot, even in a loaded AFC. I don't think they're yes. going to make the playoffs. No. But I think they're going to be in the hunt until the last two to three weeks. Like This is not going to be a, it's Halloween and the season's over. This is going to be a middle tier team, but upper middle tier mm -hmm. that gives people a game that gives top tier AFC teams uh, a much harder fight than they're anticipating. They're going to rip off some wins. Mm -hmm. They'll probably end up somewhere around eight, but I think that their ceiling, if the ball bounces their way a couple times, is 10. And they can push for a seven seed. I really do believe that. The roster is that improved. C.J. Stroud is that big of an improvement at quarterback. D'Amico Ryans is that big of an improvement at coach. Because last year's roster, you could argue, was not a three-win roster. 
Um, and this year's roster is definitely not a three-win roster. People are expecting them to be in contention for the number one overall pick, and I think they're fucking insane. Like, there is absolutely no world where this is a bottom three team. It's just not going to happen. My floor for them is six. Because, again, I think that they're going to be in the middle of the pack, and if they sustain a bunch of injuries, they'll be in the lower middle of the pack. But I I would be stunned, like simply stunned, if this team law or if this team won less than six games. There are too many good players on this roster, and Stroud is too good of a young quarterback prospect, and D'Amico is too good of a coach for this team to be objectively bad. I just don't see it. Well, we're really close in that case. My ceiling is nine. And it's the same reason. That's an over 500 team with a rookie quarterback. I know that's fairly lofty. Does that put them in contention for a playoff spot? It keeps them in it towards the end of the year. Again, they're not going to be objectively bad. And I would be most shocked if this team quit anywhere down the stretch with D'Amico leading the show. That would be the most shocking result from the entire season. So overall, Again, ceiling over 500 with a rookie quarterback in a tough division, an improved division, I think nine wins is pretty reasonable. Say that last part again. An improved division? That the AFC South is tough. People think the AFC South is a cakewalk. It's not. If you watch the rest of the episodes this week, you're going to realize it is not a cakewalk. There's some fucking killers in this division. Not the way it used to be. <laughs> so, But I still think, again, like you do, that the roster is really talented. The coaching staff has improved. The handshake between that roster and the coaching staff is going to be better than it was last year, putting people in a better position to succeed. That's the name of the game. That's how you earn wins in the NFL. I think nine wins is a good ceiling. And my floor is the same at six. It's a good team. It's it's a good team. Um, and I, 2023 is a transition year. 2024 is the prize. Like, that's where we're, we're expecting the gas to get turned on. But for the first time in a long time, you know, if I see uh, – ah, Texans are playing the Bills this Sunday. All right. <laughs> Let's see what the spread is. Ah, 16 points. Yeah, they'll lose by more than 16. I don't feel that. <laughs> I don't feel that. I'll I'll honestly be like, oh, yeah, that's going to be a game to the fourth quarter. Wouldn't doubt it. It's going to be a fun division to watch. Watch the rest of the episodes this week in our summary uh, episode on Friday. If we have inspired you as a Texans fan and you like Brett's hoodie, it's from Homage, our clothing partner. Check them out at homage.com. Some of the softest hoodies and T-shirts you will ever find. Use the link down in the description. Anything you buy to spruce up your gear closet or your drawer, as I have, uh, <laughs> supports the podcast directly. So great stuff. It's also very soft, very comfortable. The best stuff. Uh, again, if you're another AFC South fan and you were just popping in to hear us uh, talk trash about the Texans and you were disappointed that we're very optimistic about them, uh, stick around for the rest of the week because we're talking Colts tomorrow and I have very high expectations of them, probably higher expectations than most people do. Then we're talking Titans the day after that and then Jacksonville – Jacksonville's good, folks. And then we're wrapping up the AFC South the day after that on Friday, picking a division winner, which is a very tough decision. Um, you know, picking rookies of the year, offensive defense player of the year. So, uh, yeah, we are celebrating the AFC South this week. Hope you'll join us for the rest of these days. And, uh, yeah, till tomorrow. Later. <laughs>